Would you please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel 17. You may not remember off the top of your head what's in 1 Samuel 17, but when you get there, you'll remember the story. David and Goliath. 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to start reading in verse 12. Sorry, Dennis, I should have told you that before. We're going to start reading in verse 12, and we'll read to the end of verse 37. It's a long chapter, and I'm banking on many of you, if not all of you, knowing the story fairly well. 1 Samuel 17. Before we read, let's just bow our heads in a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time, this opportunity now to dig into your word, to see what you have for us, to learn, to grow, to be changed and moved by your spirit, to be more like Jesus. We thank you for the songs that we've been singing, how they remind us of scriptural truths, gospel truths, things that are real in our lives. We pray that you would use those things, use this time now as a reminder of who we are and who you are that you are the God that loves us and cares for us. You are our champion and our king, the one who goes before, and that through faith, by faith, we have many things given to us because of what Jesus has done. We thank you for this time. We pray that you would open our hearts to the truth of your word as we turn to it now. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse... 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Forty days, the Philistine came forward every morning and every evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to show the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They are with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd and loaded up and set out, as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, What will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom do you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Well, you know the rest of the story, right? You know what happens? The best summary I ever heard was given by a teenager on what is the summary of David and Goliath. Little guy fights big guy, big guy dies. That's what happens, right? David, against all odds, goes up against Goliath, the giant, and he takes what are seemingly silly weapons against a trained warrior, and he kills the giant. The giant goes a tumbling down as the children's story goes. What I want to do is just look at a couple of observations, pull out a couple of things that perhaps we miss, perhaps we overlook because we know the story so well. We know exactly how things work and exactly how things go, so we sometimes just forget some of those cool, neat little things that are hidden in there. So what I want to do is look at first David's preparation. Then we'll look at David's perception and then David's procedure. And then a couple of little things about what to do with those things afterwards. But first is David's preparation. And we typically think of his preparation right before the battle, taking his five stones and his sling and going out to meet David or to meet Goliath. But what we fail to see is actually his preparation was taking place much before that. It was happening before he even got to the battle lines. Trivia for you. David had two jobs before he became king. What were those two jobs? Shepherd, that was number one. What was number two? Okay, delivery boy. Yeah, that's in the text. Okay, he was a delivery boy. But I'm, I'm packaging that with shepherd. But uh, harpist, yeah. A musician. He was the on-call musician for King Saul. He's a shepherd and a musician. We, we know that from chapter 16, if we've been reading through 1 Samuel. He's employed by both his father and his king, and he does two different things. Um, what we also need to remember in chapter 16 is that David has been anointed by the prophet. He knows he's going to be the next king. Remember, we go through that story of uh, the prophet showing up, and, well, maybe it's Eliab. No, it's not Eliab. Maybe it's Shema. No, and he goes through all the sons, and, well, isn't there another? Yes, there's another. He's out with the sheep. He's a shepherd. We'll call him in. This is uh, the king, the future king. This is whom I have anointed, says God. Anoint this one. David is going to be the future king. And we know that. We know that story. We know this story. 
But if we piece them together, verse 15 should come as a shock. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So he's been anointed. He's already in the service of King Saul. And yet he goes back to be a shepherd. He still goes back and forth. He doesn't give up being a shepherd. What would make sense, future king, is to spend time with the current king, right? That's what you do when you're being trained for any job. You follow around the person of whom you're going to be taking over that job. If you are going to be an electrician, you become an apprentice, and you follow around the master electrician, and you learn how to do those things by following him. It's the same in any trade or any job. I follow Sam around wherever he goes so I can learn how to be a good pastor. We don't make it out of his office very often, but... The occasional Tim Hortons run. Actually, he just sends me. He does, I don't even follow him. <laughs> but that, that's what we do, right? When, you, when you're being trained, you spend time with the individual who is the expert, right? With the one who knows what they're doing. But, but David doesn't do that. He goes back to being a shepherd. And he goes back and forth. So yes, he's learning from, from Saul. But he goes back and forth to be a shepherd of his father's sheep at Bethlehem. David has been anointed. He knows he's going to be king. And yet he still returns to his old job. He leaves it up to God to work out his will of becoming king, and he leaves it up to God to adequately train him. David doesn't go, okay, I'm going to be king. Now I have to be with Saul 100% of the time. I've got to get as much knowledge and intellect from this guy as I can. He says, I'm going to go back to being a shepherd, and I'm going to trust God to give me what I need. And as we read through the Psalms, which is David's heart, right? David's reflections. David's wrestling with things. Spread out over his lifetime, sure. But we recognize that his time as a shepherd was not a waste. In human terms, we would say that is a waste, right? Don't go, don't go back to the old thing. If you're moving on, you know you're moving on. You trust the Lord. You trust God and his anointing. You trust what God has said. Don't go back to the old thing. Just go all in with this one thing. And David recognizes, no, those times in the field watching the sheep, those times that I've spent literally just sitting and walking are some of the most productive times that I can have because God is preparing me in these times. It wasn't a waste. God was training him in private and in secret. God was preparing his future king with exactly what the future king needed. God. Who David needed to hear from was not King Saul, because as the end of chapter 16 says, the Spirit of the Lord had left Saul. David's been anointed and Saul's been put aside. Saul is just, he's not important anymore. Are there things that David could have learned from him? Absolutely. But David recognized something's changed, something switched, and if I want to be a good king, I need to hear from God. If I want to do what God has called me to do, I need to spend time with him and hear from him, not from Saul. The time as a shepherd was not a waste. And the Psalms show us what God was doing in the heart of David out in the fields, watching some stinky, nasty, smelly sheep. David, he's not as, in, as inexperienced as he may appear, which when we get to um, Saul and David. Saul says, no, you, you can't go out. You don't know what you're doing. And what's David's response? Well, 
I know how to kill a lion. I know how to kill a bear. See, his time as a shepherd actually prepared him for fighting against a giant. And did you notice that when he starts talking about the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear and then the paw of the Philistine, we say hand because humans don't have hands, but he's saying he's just an animal, which is what he was acting like and who he really was in defiance against God. He was no better than an animal. I've fought animals before. The nastiest beast that you can imagine. God put me as a shepherd out in the wilderness with nothing but a stick, some stones, my bare hands. And it's interesting, when we get to the slings and the stones, David doesn't describe slings and stones as his weapons against the lions and the bears. How does he, do, how does he kill the lion and the bear? Well, he runs after the lion and the bear. He strikes it with something, we don't know what. Perhaps his sling and his stone drops the sheep, he rescues it, and then when the bear would turn on him, it says, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it, seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. The most undescriptive story of fighting a bear ever. <laughs> right? Wouldn't you think that if you fought a bear and lived and killed it, that's the story you tell at Thanksgiving, right? That's the story at every Christmas. Nobody has anything on your story. Well, I got to drive this really neat car. Yeah, well, I killed a bear. I win. Like, you, you, you trump every other story with that. And David just says, no, this was a part of my life. I did this so often. It's just, I struck it. I killed it. Don't worry about that. I can take on Goliath. I've been trained. Not only did he defend the sheep, which would have been good enough. That's the job of the shepherd is to defend the sheep. But he actually struck and killed the attacker. He went above and beyond. He did even more. God prepared David mentally, spiritually, and physically as a shepherd. It wasn't a waste. It wasn't useless. Maybe a little silly in terms of our human understanding of how we're supposed to get training and being prepared on human levels. But time spent with God is never a waste in preparation. And do we recognize the ways that God is preparing us even now? Ways that God is preparing you in whatever area of life you're in, whatever you're doing, that time spent with God, and we use the phrase time spent with God in the closet, in prayer, that that's never a waste. Time spent in his word, by yourself, out in the middle of nowhere, that's not just some cliche, monkish type thing to do. God is preparing you through his word, through the power of his spirit, Spending time with God is never a waste. Spending time with God is how he prepares you for the things in this life, for the sin that we have to face, for the darkness that's in this world, for the struggles of life, the temptations, the things that come up, and we could list hundreds of thousands of things that come into each and every one of our lives. But do we recognize that spending time with God is what prepares us for those things? Talking with each other is good. Finding a mentor is helpful. Finding somebody to counsel and work through some things is, is, is good, healthy, right. But do we recognize that there is no better counselor than the counselor? There's no better mentor than the mentor? David recognized that. He spent time with his sheep as a shepherd to learn from God. Are you willing to spend time with God and learn from him? to be prepared for the things in this life. That's David's preparation. 
The second thing is David's perception. David's perception. How David saw things. How David saw the battle. Did I do that? Hugh doesn't know. We'll keep going. David's perception. Goliath is a giant. How big is Goliath? What does the text say? How tall is he? Anybody remember? You can cheat. It's right in front of you. Goliath is six cubits in a span. How tall is that? Anybody know? Just throw a guess out there. Any number. Nine feet, nine inches. Yeah, you cheated. You look in the footnote. That's fine. Nine and a half inches. That's a good estimation. Some scholars say 12 feet. Some say nine. He's a tall dude, okay? Does it really matter if he's 10 feet or 12 feet? Like, is, is it going to make a difference to me who's under six feet? Not really. So in terms of actual numbers, it probably doesn't matter. His armor weighs, uh, where is it here, 5,000 shekels of bronze. 5,000 shekels. So look at your footnote, Sarah. What, is, what does it say? 125 pounds. That's heavy. Like, to wear that, my daughter, my youngest daughter, weighs, how much does she weigh? 25, 30 pounds? 35? Dave was holding her this, this morning in the hallway, and after about two minutes, he switched arms. She was already getting heavy, right? That's 30 pounds. Can you mar- imagine wearing 125 pounds and not just being able to stand up, not just being able to move, but that's what he fought in. That's what he wore into battle, where he had to be the most swift, the quickest, the most agile. Now, in some cases, he's just bigger than everybody else, and one big swoop, he doesn't have to move all that quick, because his reach is 50 feet. Like, he, he can catch up to you just by reaching out. So, he's a big guy, right? He's a strong guy. He's massive. And David understands that, and everybody else does too, because the text says that everyone declined his offer. Everybody was horrified. Everybody was scared. And we pinpoint Saul, and we say Saul should have stepped up. Saul was a head taller, right? He's a head taller than all the other Israelites. He's a head taller than every other Hebrew. And we say, Saul, you're the largest guy in Israel. You're Israel's champion. You should step up. And that's true. But we forget about some of the other guys that Israel had. Jonathan, Saul's son, we're told a few chapters earlier in chapter 14 that he, along with his shield-bearer, and Goliath has a shield-bearer too, the guy that walked in front to protect you from arrows as you were uh, advancing in battle, those two guys alone killed 20 guys in a span of about half an acre, or an area of about half an acre. So that's not a very big piece of land, and they killed 20 people. Jo- Jonathan is, is a champion. We learn later, David and Jonathan, they become best of friends, and they fight battles together. They, they, they form this bond because of how they work together and how how they they fight alongside one of another. Abner. Anybody remember Abner? He's one of those names that kind of get forgotten. He's the commander of Saul's army. He's the smartest, the most intelligent. He's the guy who knows how to plan out a battle. Israel's won many battles precisely because Abner is good at his job. He's good at fighting. He's a good tactician. He knows how to uh, assess a situation and, and figure out what the best plan of attack is. All of them say, no way, Jose. All of them go, I'm not fighting that guy. I'm not smart enough. I'm not big enough. I'm not strong enough. I don't care how quick you are. He, he can kill you with his spear 
So you think of how tall that guy is. With his arm reach, with his spear, you can't even get close with three of your swords attached to each other. Like, there's no way. Everybody is afraid. And he sets out, Goliath sends out a challenge to the armies of Israel. I defy you, Israel, to find anyone who can beat me. Come at me, bro. Like, that, that, that's what he's saying. You guys have nobody, but on the off chance you might, why, why don't you send somebody out and, and I'll fight them. If I win, you guys become our slaves. If he just so happens to win, we'll become your slaves. It's interesting that that challenge that he issues, that kind of mutual agreement that's made, which Israel doesn't want to take because they'll know they'll lose, the Philistines later renege on, right? If somebody kills me, the Philistines will become your slaves. And what do they do at the end of the story after Goliath has been defeated? They all run away. So you can see that Goliath and the Philistines had the utmost confidence that nobody could kill Goliath. There was nobody who was going to best him. A challenge to the armies of Israel. And Israel understands and they see, and it's interesting in the text, Saul says, or sorry, Goliath says, I defy the armies of Israel in verse 10. And then in verse 25, Israel, the Israelites, they recognize and see he comes out to defy Israel. He's defying us. He's setting a challenge to us. It's, it's very personal. He's setting a challenge on the people, the armies of Israel. However, when David enters the scene, when he comes in and he sees what's going on, and he asks, what's being said? What's going on here? David alone seems to see the only real conflict. He seems to see behind the scenes what's really going on, what's really happening. Because what he says in verse 26, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that should defy the armies, not of Israel, but of the living God? David alone sees that what's really happening here is not a challenge to Israel. It's not a challenge between Goliath and Saul. It's not a challenge between uh, just individuals. It is a challenge of pagan Philistines. Pagan Philistines. I don't know what the country was. How do you say the country? Philistine? Philistine? Palestine? Doesn't matter. Pagan Philistines. The, the true challenge is pagan Philistines issuing a challenge to the living God himself. David sees that. He says, it's not just Israel, it's God himself that they are defying. David was given specific tasks by his father, right? He was a delivery boy. Take this grain, take this cheese, deliver it. And then what was his secondary task? Still a delivery boy. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. See, he was supposed to go, drop the stuff off, talk to his brothers, and then leave. He wasn't supposed to get involved. He wasn't supposed to pay attention to anything that was going on. But David actually saw what was going on, and he didn't remove his responsibility. He didn't just kind of set that aside. Because if you're supposed to bring back assurance from your brothers, if you're supposed to be a delivery boy, what is your first and foremost job when you're in a battlefield? Don't die. <laughs> right? 
You're, you're supposed to go to the battlefield, drop some stuff off, gather some information, and go back to dad. That means stay far away from the front lines, which is where he goes. Because he hears what's going on. And he says, now wait a minute. I know I've got a job to do. Dad, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not reneging on my responsibility. But something bigger is happening here. Somebody is challenging the living God, which is the God he's been spending so much time with, the God he has been meditating on, praying to, learning from, spending time with. He recognizes the true challenge precisely because he's been spending so much time with his God. Eliab falsely accuses and ridicules. What are you doing here? You just want to watch the fight. I know you're just, you have a wicked heart. You just want to see people get killed. Saul discourages his only volunteer. You, you can't go. You're, you're, you're not experienced enough. He's much bigger than you. You're just a boy and he's been fighting since he was your age. You're, you're, you're no match for him. Which is interesting how he made an offer to anyone. If you kill Goliath, you'll be exempt from taxes. You can have my daughter in marriage. And the only volunteer he gets, he shuts down. They just don't see what the true challenge is. They don't really see that, guys, put yourself to the side here. Don't you see that this is sinful rebellion against God himself? They want God himself to be defied. They want to prove that their God, Dagon, that was the God of the Philistines, they want to prove that their God is bigger than our God. This isn't just a matter of us stepping up so that our pride isn't ruined or that our name isn't destroyed. Don't you truly see and understand that they want to prove that their God's bigger and better? And that's just not true, guys. You don't have to worry. David recognizes what the true challenge is, and he also recognizes that it's God alone who will bring the victory. It is God alone who will give him success. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. Verses 38 to 39, which we didn't read, they highlight the improbability of David's success from a human perspective. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put his coat of armor on him and bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he wasn't used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with the sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. We're meant to be reading this story, and you, you see how he can't even put armor on properly, and you go, oh my goodness, he's really not, he's just going to die. Like, we know the end of the story, right? But reading through this, hearing this story retold as a young kid, you'd have to be going, David's going to lose. Big guy, big giant, probably has his armor weighing more than potentially even David weighed, right? It, it's not possible. He can't even fit into the armor. He can't hold the sword. How is he supposed to fight? It's not possible. From a human perspective. Because what we need to remember is God has been preparing David. And what we need to remember is God's spirit does not rest on the current king. That's what happened in chapter 16. The spirit of God was removed from, from Saul. And the spirit of God now rests on the future king, on King David. What we need to see is that in, in our lives, different areas, different contexts, different positions that we're in, 
do we recognize that anger and disdain for believers, anger and disdain for the people of God is not ultimately rooted in a hatred for you. It's in a hatred for God. That the reason that people don't like Christians, the reason that Christianity has such a tough go in it, the reason Christianity is the most persecuted religion worldwide is not because people hate, it's not because the world hates people who care for the poor. Christians aren't hated because they love one another. Christians aren't hated because they pray for their enemies and care for their enemies. Christians are hated and despised because the world hates the living God. They're in open rebellion against him. They want to see their God, whatever it may be, self, power, money, maybe a specific actual idol that they've created in some far reaches of the earth. They, they want to prove that their God, primarily self, is the one that we see most prominently today, that their God is better than our God. Christians are hated. Christians are persecuted because the world hates God. The world wants to see God fail. And David saw that if anything was going to happen, if God, if this battle was going to be won, it was going to be won by God himself. So that's David's procedure. We saw David's preparation or sorry, we're moving on to David's procedure. I got my notes mixed up here. We saw David's preparation, David's perception, what he truly saw. He saw what was really the battle that was going on. And now we're on to David's procedure, what he actually does, how he actually goes about the battle. He picks up sling and stones, which when you think of a sword against a giant in a battle, that makes more sense than a sling and a stone, right? Like if we're just honest, stones against 125 pounds of bronze armor, against a helmet of bronze, against a shield bearer who is walking in front to block any attack, why, why a sling and a stone? But it's not as dumb as we may think because if you think of a shield bearer, we're told that the shield, shield bearer in verse 41, the shield bearer is in front of him and he kept coming closer to David. So the shield bearer in front of Goliath, they're inching closer and closer and closer. And as Goliath gets closer and closer, you begin to see from David's perspective you're not going to win with the sword anyways. You're not going to win with the spear. And so if you've got a shield bearer standing in front of you, blocking your feet and torso, what leaves, what, what, what's open for attack? The head. That's all that Goliath needs to be able to see, and he be, needs to be able to walk forward. The only thing that's really exposed right now is Goliath's head. See, David's choice, as silly and ridiculous as it may seem from a human perspective, is actually one of the most smartest things he could have done because his only area of attack is at Goliath's head. David brings these things. Apparently he had a stick too because he had his staff, his shepherd's staff, because Goliath says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Sticks and stones? This is, this is all you bring to a fight? What is this? David brings these things, but he does not identify them as his primary weapon. He doesn't say, I come at you with sticks and stones. He says, in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, big things, warrior things, battle things, but I come against you with sticks and stones. It's not what it says. But I come against 
you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. You haven't just defied the armies of Israel. You've defied the God who is the God of the armies of Israel. And I come against you with him. See, in this sense, the physical weapon wouldn't have mattered. David's smart. He's wise. He's thought this through. He sees his only plan of attack is going for the head. But he could have come at Goliath with a pea shooter, and if God was on his side, David would have won. Now, that sounds a little ridiculous, but do you agree with me? That regardless of what David came at Goliath with, David would have won. Precisely because he came at Goliath in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. We've seen that happen in the Old Testament. Gideon, he defeats the armies of Midian with what? Torches and horns, clay pots. Smashes them, torches are lit, and Midian flees. That's even less than stones and sling, right? And yet the victory is still won because God was with them. Samson defeated a thousand guys with what? The jawbone of a donkey. Not your best weapon, right? But he won because the physical thing did not matter. The physical weapon did not matter. The defeat of the enemies of God, the enemies of Israel, came about because the Lord was bringing about the victory. So he puts the stone in the sling, winds it up, throws it at Goliath, and Goliath falls face down. I think it was A.W. Pink. I think he, 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 he thought about the fact that, now wait a minute, we've been told Goliath has a helmet on, right? And Goliath wouldn't take his helmet off going into battle. So he has a bronze helmet on his head. And helmets, we see them in the, the children's stories. They didn't stop here, okay, leaving the forehead open. Like, helmets came down to here, and they had a visor that flipped down so to, to protect their face, right? So Goliath's whole head is covered. And A.W. Pink says, it was the power of God that actually powered that stone to go right through that helmet in Goliath's forehead. Now, we're not told what happened to his helmet, whether he was still wearing his helmet, whether it came off when he defied the armies of God. Maybe it slipped off, sure. But if David can defeat Goliath with just a stone and a sling by the power of God, I think God can power that through a bronze helmet, don't you? That that wouldn't have been too big of a deal for God to handle? The giant is struck. He falls face down. That's another phrase that we sometimes just skip over. You get hit in the head and you fall down. Some of us fall down and get hit in the head, but he gets hit in the head and then falls down. My daughter has bruises all over her forehead because she's fallen down and then smacked her head. But it's the other way around. He gets struck and then falls face down. And that phrase, falls face down, what we're being told, if we understand and see from David's perspective, that it's really the pagan armies fighting against the armies of God. It is pagan religion against God himself, the living God, we should remember what happened in 1 Samuel 5. 1 Samuel 5, the Ark of the Covenant is with the Philistines. And the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant into the presence of their pagan god, Dagon. And do you remember that story? They bring it in front, and then the next morning, Dagon is face down. He falls face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And so they pick him back up because their God cannot pick himself back up. They pick him up 
and they serve him some food that he doesn't eat because he's not a real God, and then they go about their business, and the next day they come back, and he's face down. But not just face down, but his head has been removed. It's fallen off. His head and his hands have broken. See, what we're seeing that in the presence of God, pagan gods cannot stand. They do not survive. They, they cannot stand against the God of Israel. So to hear, Goliath, the champion of the pagan god Dagon, just like the God himself that fell over in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant, so too in the presence of God himself, because that's whom David brought into this battle. The Goliath, the giant falls face down. The battle didn't belong to Goliath. It didn't belong to the Philistines. It didn't belong to the false gods of all the pagan armies in all the world. It belonged to the Lord. Do you remember that this morning? That the battle that goes on, the spiritual warfare, the physical battles that we face, that they belong to the Lord? That God himself is on your side if you are a believer? That if you have come to him in repentance and faith, you have the God of the living, uh, the living God, the God of the armies of Israel on your side with you this morning. So there's three observations. David's preparation, David's perception, and David's procedure. And now just a quick word to the wise. What do we do with this? There are certainly things that we can pull out and draw out of this, but I think we need to be careful with how we apply David to our lives. I think we need to be careful because we sometimes say automatically, David had faith, God went with him, he defeated the giant. Therefore, God will defeat every giant in my life. We make that leap. We make that jump, even though that's not even true in David's life. It depends on how we define giant. Did David have absolute trust and faith in his God that he would defeat Goliath? Yes. But in the coming chapters, the things that we so often attribute to as giants, stress, fear, anger, physical disabilities, cancer, whatever it may be, that God can remove those, which he can, and he does sometimes. But David was on the run for the next seven to ten years, right? He was running from Saul for his life. Isn't that a pretty big giant? Why didn't God remove that giant from his life? We could argue that David would actually have more faith after killing Goliath, cutting off his head, and walking around and taunting the other nations, the other armies. Look at what my God does to your champions. You don't stand a chance against the living God. Don't you think he would have had more faith? He would have trusted the Lord more? So why did he have to run for seven years? Why did he have to hide in caves? We sometimes misapply the term giants to the wrong things. Because God does not always remove the giants from our lives. He just doesn't. He hasn't promised this, depending on how you define giant. If giants are merely obstacles in our lives, he has not promised to remove everything in this life. He just hasn't. Do we pray for that cancer to be removed? Yes. Do we pray for that lost individual? Do we pray for our sick family members? Do we pray for that annoying co-worker that God would just get rid of them? Do we pray for all of these things? Do we pray that God would remove the stress from our lives, the fear and anxiety that we seem to hold on to so easily? Do we pray and ask for God to take those things away? Yes. But Paul brings an interesting perspective. 
in First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, sorry, Second Corinthians twelve. He said he was, Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh so that I wouldn't be conceited. I wouldn't be too puffed up. The Lord gave me this thorn in my flesh. And I pleaded with God three times, Lord, take this away. Lord, remove this thing. Lord, I would be far more influential, far more productive if I didn't have this thing in my life. If it was gone. Would you think of all the things that Paul went through? Shipwreck, beating, imprisonment, falsely accused, misunderstood, couldn't, couldn't have Paul have been more effective from our perspective if all of those things were gone? If he didn't have this thorn in his flesh, the thing that he didn't have to think about every day? Aren't there things in our lives that we just go, Lord, if you just got rid of it, I would be so much more useful to you. I could be more helpful. I could do more things at church. I could be more involved in service for you. Lord, just remove this. Paul says he pleaded three times. And the Lord said, what? My grace is sufficient for you. And if we're honest, we read that, we hear that from the Lord, and we sometimes go, no thanks God, I just want it gone. I don't want grace. Right? I don't want grace to stand up under this. I don't want grace to deal with this. I just want it gone. We don't see and recognize that the grace of God is exactly what we need. And it's far better than having anything removed. Because what does Paul do? I pleaded three times. The Lord said, no, grace is good enough for you. Paul said, okay. And, and he becomes effective. He limps a little bit. But the grace of God in his life, on his life, becomes a powerful tool in effectively preaching and teaching the gospel. We don't always want grace. We just want the giant gone. But that's not what God has promised. He has promised grace for whatever it is in your life that you have. He has promised grace to get you through it. So that's if we misapply what giant means. But if we define giant as something else, if we define giant as sin, God has promised to defeat that giant. He has promised to defeat sin, and he already has. He did that at the cross. He promised to defeat sin and death and the devil, and he says, I will do it and I will always do it, and then he did it, and he says, and I'll continue to do that in your life from now until you die. Because we're not the David in this story, which is what we often do. Be like David. Have faith in God and you will have great victories. God will bring things into your life and he will bring triumphs into your life. But we're not the David in this story. Jesus is. We are not David. David's greater son is David. He is the king that steps up when no one else could or would. He is the king that steps up and actually sees what the problem is. He is the king that steps up and defeats the ultimate giant. He is the king on whom God's spirit rests. He is the one with whom God is pleased. And he is the one, from every human perspective, was doing nothing right. Right? Jesus was not the Messiah that was expected or even wanted, really. Just get rid of Rome, please. We'll be fine. Jesus said, no, you don't see what the real problem is here. It's sin itself, and I will deal with sin. And he did. Jesus is David. So who are we? Maybe we're the Israelites. Scared, worried, nervous, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to act, in need of saving, 
That's true. But biblically, we're more like the Philistines, aren't we? We're more like the rebel fighting against God than fighting on his side. We're more like wanting to be having sin as our champion as opposed to God. We want to do our own thing, our own way, and we want to fight against God in all of his ways because we think that we know better. We think that we've got something better on our side. We're really rebels warring against God, hating God, hating his people. And yet mercy of mercies, miracle of miracles, through the cross, by the power of his Spirit, Jesus breaks in, destroys that heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh, and instead of killing us like the Israelites did with the Philistines, he welcomes us into his family. We're the Philistines, but we be, we're transformed into his children. We, we are brought into his family. We're the Philistines, yes, but by the grace of God, we are changed. From God-haters to God-lovers. From rebels into redeemed. But we are also like the sheep in this story. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep when a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock. I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. See, Jesus, he rescues us because we are his sheep. And when we are caught in the jaws of sin, in the jaws of something stupid that we have so often just run headlong into, Jesus comes and he does save us. He rescues us because we are his. That's what he does for his sheep, for his children. He is our champion and he does not let us go. He does not let us die. If you were a sheep, use your imagination for a second. If you were a sheep, one of David's sheep, and a lion or a bear you're out wandering in the field. Maybe you get too close to the forest. Maybe you're just wandering around, not even paying attention. A lion or a bear snatches you up. What, are you, what is coming out of your mouth at that moment? What are you thinking? Bah! <laughs> right? I think that's what sheep say. Anybody? Right? Bah, they still say bah. That's what they say in the little books I read uh, for our children. Bah! Bah! I'm caught! I'm stuck! And if you could speak English, or I guess Hebrew for David, I'm over here! Help! I'm stuck! It's got me! I can't get out! There's nothing I can do! Shepherd, where are you? David, where are you? Now imagine you're Jesus' sheep, and you're caught in the thicket or the teeth of something, some sin you can't get rid of, some sin that keeps weighing you down, some sin that just won't let go, what are you supposed to do? We so often just turn inwards and go, I can do this. I can, I can get over it. You know what? It's not that big a deal. I don't, I don't need to go to God. I don't need to go to Jesus. It's fine. Or maybe I'll just talk with somebody else and they can help me get through it. Or I found another five-step book. Maybe, maybe that'll help me get over this thing. No. Just like David's sheep would have been screaming their heads off, caught in the teeth of a lion, we too, now reverently, understand this reverently, we should be screaming our heads off, 
to have our shepherd, our king, our champion. I'm over here. Help. I can't get out. Lord Jesus, I don't know what to do. I'm at a loss. I've come to the end of my road. I don't know what to do. Lord, help me. Save me. And this is the promise. This is the one that he has promised. That he will save us. That he will save us from our sin. Not just the sins that we commit, but sin. The thing that's stuck in us. Oh, in one day, glory of glories, we will be free of sin. We might come into glory. We might come into the kingdom with a few scars, right? But so did Jesus. We come through these things, through the teeth of the bear and the lion, and through his grace, by his grace, he saves us. Will you do that this week? I don't know all of you very well, but I know most of you fairly well. And there are things in our lives that they weigh us down, they burden us, they're hard. Will you cry out to Jesus this week, Lord, save me. Give me grace. I need it more and more every day. May God help us to cry out for his help. I'm going to ask our musicians to lead us in our closing song. Father, we ask now as we go from here that you would give us grace for every hurdle, that you would give us what we need to stand up under against the things that come at us in this life. Help us to turn to you and run to you instead of running from you when we are caught in the jaws of sin. Help us to see our king standing victorious over the giant sin and death and the devil and help us to run to him in thanksgiving and praise. Help us to do that this week. And it's in the name of our Savior, our shepherd and our king, Jesus Christ, that we pray. Amen.